0: Well, hey, if you're new around here or if you've been away for a while, my name is Alex. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. I've been here for seven years, actually seven years today. I came here seven years ago on March 14th. So, oh, thank you. My wife, Fallon, and my three girls, we absolutely love being here. We're so thankful to get to be a part of this community of faith. Um, But one thing we don't love is daylight savings time. Is there any parents here with me? Man, trying to get three little ones out of the door this morning, um, bright and early, losing an hour of sleep. Funny story for you, I actually, you know, kind of a hectic morning and the diapers always have to change as you're getting into the car, right? And I'm on my way and uh, I didn't realize that my phone had rang multiple times and largely because I was supposed to be here and it was 8.50 and service starts at 9 and I may have just been in the parking lot, I don't know. And so my phone starts buzzing and buzzing, and finally I see Brad Williams. He's called me like three times, and I'm like, this is my moment. So I pick up the phone. Hello? (laughs) Dude, you're supposed to be here. You're preaching in just a few minutes. I'm like, I'm in the parking lot. It's okay. (laughs) But if you had a morning like mine, welcome. If you're online, hey, we're happy you're here. I get it. You slept in because, you know, daylight savings time, and we won't hold that against you. Um, Today, we are looking at a very strange passage. In fact, it is about something called strange fire. And uh, it's one of those really weird passages for our modern sensibilities. We're often gonna look at things like this that are a few thousand years old and go, what the heck? (laughs) Like, what is God doing here? It seems to violate something inside of us, our our own sensibilities, and we tend to kinda look at these things and sort of wish that they weren't there. If you've ever read through the Bible start to finish, you get to this part in the Old Testament, these stories where you just kind of go, I don't get it, I don't understand what's going on, Turn the page and keep moving. But the problem is, is we keep running into stories like this. They happen often, not all the time. In fact, most of the Old Testament doesn't have these little weird stories in it. But occasionally, we do bump into one. And today, as we continue our 92-week series through the book of Leviticus, we are going to hit another sort of weird story. It's not actually 92 weeks, everyone, I promise. Um... One theologian said, when it comes to stories like this in the Bible, there's simplicity and then a journey through complexity, only to land on the other side again, which is simplicity. What does he mean? Well, on face value, when we look at these kind of texts, we will come away with conclusions, simple conclusions, just by reading them, going, this happened, therefore this must be true. But in order to really understand what's actually true and happening, we have to go down a road that is complex and hard. We have to sort of flex muscles that we may not enjoy flexing when reading ancient documents. We have to kind of go on this journey of discovery to figure out what is this ancient text actually trying to say. And once we do, we end up back to a place of simplicity, a couple few things that are true, but they're very different from the first things that we saw. So in a way, it's like my yard. It was a beautiful weekend this weekend, and my yard got attention for the first time in many months, right? And I was outside and, you know, cleaning up the the grass and cleaning up the bark dust and getting all the things ready for the spring and the summertime. And on one hand, it's grass and it's bark dust, right? It's just simple, everyday things that we see. But I was thinking about this. On the other hand, the more I look at it, the more complex things that look simple are. Right? Like, why does grass grow down and up at the same time? Right? Why does it require the sun in order for that to happen? And why are there certain spots on my grass that aren't growing grass, but they're growing mushrooms? And what is the deal here? Right? There's complexity to the small little ecosystem that is my yard. But on the other side of it, it's still just grass. Right? It's still just bark dust. But now my understanding of those things, the more I dive into them, has only expanded. I appreciate my little yard more because of that journey than I did before. So that's what this text is going to be like a little bit today, right? We're going to see something and we're going to go, "Uh, not so sure. We're going to have to do some work to really understand what's actually happening. And then on the other end of it, I think we're all going to have a bigger picture of who God is and how he reveals himself in the book of Leviticus. But before we get there, a couple things just to remind us, Leviticus is all about Jesus Jesus actually said in John 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Traditionally, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are called the five books of Moses because we ascribe authorship to Moses. He's the one who wrote it. So what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the religious folks of the day, is listen, if you believed the God that was revealed in the first five books of the law, right, then you would believe me because everything Moses wrote about Pointed towards me. And one theologian says it's like this there are signposts in the Old Testament that are pointing forward into the fog. I love that picture, right? They're saying this story is going someplace. There's a fulfillment of this story to come, but right now all you know is the direction it's headed and it's a little foggy in front of you. But because of Jesus, we now have sort of this interpretive lens to read the Old Testament through. Now we can see where those signposts were pointing to. He helps us understand the things that in ages past were not understandable. And we also find this out about Jesus, that he is the exact representation of God. Right, so not only does Jesus help us understand this Old Testament God, but Jesus is this Old Testament God. He is the image of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, and he helps us define that. Which means for us, when there are parts of the Bible that don't look like Jesus that God's acting in a way that seems to sort of be counterintuitive and counter to the person of Jesus. The problem isn't the Bible, the problem is our understanding of the Bible. The more we dive into it, even in passages like this, the more we will see Jesus. And one more thought before we get into this text, as I'm kind of building it up for you, right? You and I are not very good judges of what good and evil is. Now, this is the most ancient uh, temptation of human beings to feel like we should elevate ourselves to a place where we get to decide what is good and what is not, right? This was the temptation in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were told, listen, there is a world of blessing for you You can have it all in this garden of Eden or garden of delight. I will walk with you in the cool of the day, God says. But there's one thing I want from you. It's your trust and it's your love, right? Follow me and this is what I have for you. If you choose to disobey me, if you choose to define what is good and evil on your own terms, that will only lead you to death. And, you know the story, Adam and Eve decide to define good and evil on their own terms, and they walk down the path of death. And it spirals, because right off the bat, they fight, they start blaming each other, then their son murders their other son, and then in a few chapters later, you have entire societies built on injustice fighting against one another. The world is broken when we define good and evil on our own terms. However, if you're anything like me, you will be tempted when you read these passages in the Old Testament to say, God, that was wrong, and my way is right. And one of the things we have to do is come to this text with humility. Recognizing that God is God, and I am not. While at the same time, the Bible actually does give you a framework for wrestling with God in that place, right? When we don't understand what God is doing and why, the Bible doesn't say, well, Too bad for you, get over it, right? The Bible does say God sees things on a plane that we don't see or understand, and yet it gives us a framework to process our emotions and our feelings, um, to lament, there's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations, like to grieve over the things we see, to live in this tension is the invitation of the Bible. Okay, so with all that in mind, Go to Leviticus chapter nine, verse 24. Quick recap from last week. Brad, our lead pastor, um, he led us through uh, the whole chapter of chapter nine, which culminates in this beautiful moment that we're gonna read about right here. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy, and they fell face down. Last week, we talked about God shows up uniquely when his people gather. It's hard to put language to it. It's hard to understand it. It's hard even to kind of really figure out what we mean by God showing up. But we just know God does something when his people come together. Now, in the passage of Leviticus chapter 9, God's people, they, there's sort of this buildup of a progressive obedience and recognizing that God has sacri- He has uh, set up this sacrificial system in a way that a, a substitute would need to take the punishment in the place of the people in order for God's people to be in right relationship with God. But the result is joy. The result is life. The result is all of the people fell face down. All of the people were filled with joy. That's what happens when God's people are in God's presence. Now, the fire in the altar was lit by God himself. It's a representation, a picture of the presence of God. And what's important to understand is this altar set in the middle of the people of God. A.K.A. God wants to be with his people. He puts his presence in the middle of the camp. He wants to be with you. That's the story and these people coming out of Egypt would have thought their job was to keep the gods at bay because the gods were annoyed and bothered by them and if we made the gods mad, the gods would smite us, kill us and get rid of us and so they would live in this constant fear and tension of the gods and yet this God, this God of the Bible wants to be near to his people. He wants them to experience joy and life in his presence. We find out in Leviticus 6 that the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. It's repeated again. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. This is verse 13. And it must not go out. It was the job of the priest to make sure that there was still wood on the fire. Right? God lit the fire, but the priests, they were responsible to keep the fire burning. See, a priest's job in this time, God has set up the priesthood to be representatives of who God is to the world. And their job was to show the people that God always wants to be with you and that he never goes away. Symbolically, this fire never goes out. Chapter 9 is a build-up moment of God delivering people after 430 years of slavery, miraculously bringing them into a promised land, setting up a national identity around the worship of Yahweh. It's this huge moment. All the people are watching. And then chapter 10 happens. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense an offered, unauthorized, or another translation of that Hebrew word is strange, fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died in the presence of the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, to those who come near me, I will show my holiness. And in the sight of all the people, I will reveal my glory. But Aaron remained silent. I'm not very good at grammar. Um, In this last year, having to homeschool uh, my kiddo at home, The one thing that Fallon, my wife, does that I don't do is teach the English language. Because if you've ever sent a text message with me, there's like 18 exclamation points and almost no commas or periods. I'm just not good at this whole English grammar thing. But what I have learned about Hebrew grammar, um, and maybe this is the reason why I like this ancient language, is because they don't really have grammar. (laughs) They don't really use grammar in the same way that we do. There's no way to add emphasis like we would put something in all caps or a bunch of exclamation points saying, pay attention, listen to this. So one of the devices they use is rhyming. They introduce phrases. The exact same phrase introduced multiple times means pay attention and listen. This is so important. Don't miss it. Right? And this is the problem, is sometimes we don't know that, and so we skip right over it and we go, Oh, I don't I don't really understand. But this is the key to understanding the flow of the rest of this wild story. In chapter 9, we see that fire comes from the presence of the Lord and consumes the offering. And when people saw it, they shout for joy and they fall face down. In chapter 10, it says in ver- like the exact same phrase, so fire came from the presence of the Lord, but instead of consuming the sacrifice, the substitute, it consumes Nadab and Abihu and they die. It seems as if the author goes out of their way to make sure we understand that God has not changed. His presence is still his presence Right? His holiness is still his holiness. What is different is how the people approach God. One is through a path of sacrifice and a substitute, and the result is life and joy. The other is this thing called strange fire, whatever that is, we'll get to that in a minute, but it is their own path, it is their own direction, it is their own definition of good or evil, and the result is they come encounter with this same God, only they're toast, only they're hurt, only they die. And there's, I'm not, I don't mean to be flippant with this story because it's incredibly sad and hard. And yet what we see is a simple truth. There is a way that leads to God that leads to life and one that does not. And that path leads away from God into death. In Exodus 19, Verse 22, God says that even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. What does it mean for the Lord to break out? Well, the Hebrew word means break, burst open, disperse, move against. In other words, it's like this. You break into my house with ill intent to hurt my wife or children and Alex Lesser will break out on you, right? Like, I will move to protect my children, my wife, Right. If you move to harm them, it's the same thing that God is saying here. Priests, you have an important role. You're to represent who I am to the world, but if you move against me and if you leave my children away, I will move against you. This is a heart of a father who desperately loves his children. And I'll be honest, there's a struggle with passages like this sometimes. We look at God and say, God, this just doesn't seem very gracious. It doesn't seem very fair. But then on the same token, when we experience something in our life that feels unjust and we didn't feel like God moved to defend us, we say, God, there's something wrong with you. Why didn't you stop that evil or injustice in the world? We end up in a very difficult position. And here we are again in the text where we see a father God who is moving against priests, misrepresenting him by offering strange fire. What is strange fire? Well, I'm glad you asked. The NIV renders this the unauthorized fire. Um, And there's a lot of different questions about what this is or isn't, what it could be or what it could not be. Here's something really interesting. The text actually doesn't say what the strange fire is besides that it's strange fire. The idea is that they took these bowls and they added their own incense to them and then presented it to the altar. And something happened when they did and it consumed them. Um, A lot of different commentators, they they think there could be some different things going on here. One is that they might have been intoxicated, right? There's a a few verses later where God says, hey, when you're doing this, like priests, you can't be drunk when you do it. And so a lot of people think, well, perhaps the reason why God is saying that is because they were, and they got themselves in trouble. That's one plausible example. It could be that. Um, Another thought is that they're trying to usurp their father's position of high priest. Aaron, their father's high priest, Nadab and Abihu are not, but they saw what happened when their dad stood up and he offered the sacrifice and the fire roared and the people were all moved with great joy and maybe Nadab and Abihu were like, ooh, that looks fun, that looks cool. Maybe if I put on a show, I can manipulate this as well and get the people to move and bow towards me. There's no lack for a hunger of power in their day as there is no lack for a hunger of power in our day either. Some think that there's a chance that the way they were doing this, they were synchronizing Egyptian religion Um, And the thought that a priest's duty was actually to keep the forces of order and chaos in the heavens at bay. And they would offer the sort of smoke screen to prevent the astral deities of the Egyptian gods from pouring their wrath down on the people. And so some think that perhaps that's what they're doing. They're just co-opting religion from the Egyptians and they're trying to put it in place and that doesn't work. We don't actually know what happened, and maybe it's a combination of all of the above, but here's what we do know, is that there seems to be zero objection to what happened to them in this text, even by their father. Nobody seems to look at it and say this was unjust, this wasn't fair, this wasn't right. No, there's raw emotion as a result of these things, but we don't see anywhere in this text that what happened to them wasn't perceived by the people around them, that it wasn't fair. We use terms like unauthorized or not appropriate all the time. If I decided I was gonna get in my car and drive to the Federal Reserve Bank and take $20 million of gold bars, um, that wouldn't work. I don't even know if you can do that in the Federal Reserve Bank, but hypothetically, if I could, that would not work because I'm not authorized to go into the Federal Reserve Bank. Right? I know that. I don't have, you know, clearance for that space, and so there would be consequences for my behavior, right? I would be put in jail. I I don't know what would happen, but it wouldn't be good because I tried to enter into an unauthorized space. Same idea with lack of it not being an appropriate space. We use this language all the time. I'm raising three daughters, and my middle daughter asked me why I can't take her into the big girl bathroom, and I said, well, that's not an appropriate place for me to go. Right? Because I'm I'm a boy, Isla, so I can't go into that space with you. So we use this language all the time. There are appropriate places where we can be and can't be, and if we enter those, there's consequences. There's unauthorized spaces that we can be and can't be, and if we enter those, there's consequences. And so we're fine with that when we're the ones who get to set the terms of what those places are, but we struggle when God himself decides to dictate what are the unauthorized places as well. And again, this text makes us wrestle with that. In the Proverbs, there is a line, um, ancient wisdom, that says there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads in death. It's a language of metaphor, not necessarily physical death and physical life, but the things that bring you life, right, or the things that are dehumanizing in our life, life and death. They're these two metaphors and realities that the Bible plays with all the time. Jesus says that he has come to give you life and that in abundance, and there's another path that desires to steal, kill, and destroy who you are, to dehumanize who you are, And in a way, that idea can sort of summarize this entire story of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10 and Aaron and the people of God in chapter nine. There is a path of life and a path that leads to death. Now let's keep going through the text. Leviticus 10, verse three. But Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel. Oh, those names are a (laughs) mouthful. And he said to them, come here, "'Carry the bodies of your cousins outside the camp, "'away from the front of the sanctuary.' "'So they came forward, and they carried them, "'still in their tunics, outside the camp, "'as Moses had directed. "'Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, "'Eleazar and Ithamar, "'Do not let your hair become disheveled. "'Do not tear your garments, or else you will die. "'And the Lord will be angry with the whole congregation. "'But your brothers, the whole house of Israel, "'may mourn on account of the fire "'that the Lord has ignited.' You shall not go outside the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses instructed. There's a bit of a tense interaction between these two brothers, Moses and Aaron. They seem to kind of not necessarily be getting along here. Uh, Moses is like, Aaron, get your head in the game. And Aaron is like, did you see what just happened to my sons? Now again, Aaron doesn't seem to object to God's behavior, but that doesn't mean he isn't feeling something here. No matter how much my children may disobey me or or do something that hurts relationship with us, my love for them stays the same, right? And here we find a father whose heart is broken and yet at the same time isn't able to shake his fist at heaven. He knows what happened to them was just. But now they're in a strange predicament because they've gone through all of these rites and rituals in order to be in the holy of holy places, in order to offer the sacrifices, and yet this strange thing has happened. There's two dead bodies, which kind of makes them unqualified to be where they are, and they don't really know what to do, and they're frozen. They're literally just standing there going, ah, if I move, something might happen. If I don't move, something bad might happen. I'm stuck, and so Moses steps in And he begins to give them instruction. Now, in this whole process, Moses also has to redefine the priesthood. In a way, he's reforming it. Because already, at the very beginning, their first day on the job, they botched it, right? They already messed it up. So Moses is going to spend the next seven, eight verses redefining what it looks like to be a priest of God's people. Now, in the ancient Near East, in the context, priests tried to keep the wrath of God away, but I'm going to remind you one more time, because it's important, that the priests here are supposed to be a representative of who God is to the world around them. And so he helps them redefine that. And in all of this, there's two things that are really important. One is that God is holy. Now, we've Oftentimes we use that term, sometimes we're like, oh, you're being holier than thou or something along those lines. Um, We've co-opted some of that language and we've redefined it. But in the Bible, holy means set apart. It means other, right? And it speaks to God's moral purity, his righteousness, his goodness without limit. And yet at the same time, what we learn about God being holy means he is different than us, He exists on a plane that is higher than us. He's able to see and understand things that we can only see in part. In fact, there's a beautiful line in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, now we only see in part. But when um, the future comes, when God resurrects his people and reunites in this broken world to himself, we will see in whole. And this idea is that right now we live in this existence where we look around and we are confused and maybe frustrated because we only see in part, but God sees in whole and there will be a day when he opens our eyes to see in whole as well. But it's important to understand that that God is holy, he's other, he's different than us. And the second thing we see is that God is gracious. (laughs) Now I know what you're thinking is what I was thinking too when I first thought Read through this as God is gracious. I mean, it seems like He just kind of took some guys down for breaking the rules, right? For stepping over the line. But again, the story continues, verse 16. Later, Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. He was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and asked, Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the holy place? For it is most holy. It was given to you to take away the guilt of the congregation by making atonement for them before the Lord. Since its blood was not brought inside the holy place, you should have eaten it in the sanctuary area as I commanded. And we were all thinking the same thing, right? But Aaron replied to Moses, Behold, the very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, since these things have happened to me, if I had eaten the sin offering today, it would would have been acceptable in the sight of the Lord And when Moses heard this explanation, he was satisfied. That's literally how it ends. It's a strange ending about a story about strange fire. In other words, Aaron says, dude, have you seen the day that I've had? Right? Do you understand what's going on? Yeah, I I didn't even know what to do. The rules have been broken, and I'm in this weird spot, and my sons are dead, and I don't know what to do. I did the best that I could. And Moses is like, you know what, dude, you're right been a rough day. And that's it. Now, if you or I failed as miserably at our job as Aaron did in this passage, we'd probably be fired, right? Like, this is, there's no way, short way of saying, this is a resume killer, right? As high priest, this happens on your watch in the most important moment of their history. You probably think that there is no future for me in the high priesthood. God, find someone else. But that's not what we see here. Aaron does his best. And honestly, he made a mess of things. And yet we find that God still has a hope and a future for him. Leviticus 11, verse 1 and 2 instead of the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron and saying, Aaron, you're done, he says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that lived on the land, these are the ones you may eat. And then he goes on for seven more chapters defining Aaron's role for the people of God and his future. That is what's so mind-blowing about this story. Something is so different from his sons, whose obviously heart is far away from God, proud. Um, And then you have Aaron, who also makes mistakes, and yet his heart is in a humble spot. And God says, I see your heart, and I have a hope and I have a future for you. He's not canceled, he's not fired, he's shown grace, he's given a future, and that's how this passage points us to Jesus. In John 14, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you want to know how to be reconciled to God, have a right relationship with God, to feel the joy that we saw in Leviticus 9 of all the people, the pathway is Jesus. Right? What once was a signpost pointing towards a distant, foggy future, now we know Jesus is that path. Jesus is the way to be right with God. Jesus is the way for you to be fulfilled and whole and made new again. Right? Jesus is the pathway to God. We also discover that in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter four, that Jesus is the high priest, ultimate high priest, and our ultimate sacrifice. The author of Hebrews says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way that we were, and yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Aaron was a high priest that failed, perfectly representing who God is to the world. And yet God didn't cancel him. However, we needed a true high priest, one who did not fail, one who perfectly represents who God is to the world. And the author of Hebrews says that is Jesus. But not just that, if you remember in chapter 9, in order for the people to be in right standing with God and to enjoy the joy of that, there had to be a substitute to take our punishment's place on the altar to be consumed. And God himself in the person of Jesus climbs on the cross, the altar, and is consumed on our behalf for our sin. Not only does Jesus show us who God is as our true high priest, but he also allows himself to be consumed for our sin so that we could be in right relationship with God and so that we could have a future and a hope, which is where we're gonna end and land the plane. First Peter, the apostle Peter, with all of this in mind, writes what, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful lines in the New Testament. But you church but you anyone who is a follower of Jesus you are a chosen people you are a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light see God sets up a new priesthood and it's you and it's me It's not me because I stand on a stage or Brad or any of that. No, God says, if you are one of my kids, if you are a follower of Jesus, guess what? You have a new future and a new destiny and a new job. You're a priest. And remember, we talked a lot. What does a priest do? A priest represents who God is to the world around them. So what does that practically look like? Well, if you're a kid and you're on the playground, you are a priest. You get to show your friends, your teachers, the people around you, who God is and what he's like in your actions and your attitudes and your behaviors and the things you say and don't say. If you're a teacher, and man, have you had a hard year this last year, you are a priest or a priestess. It fits, right? You get to represent who God is to your students, to your faculty, to your coworkers, You get to help teach and instruct in wisdom and kindness and goodness. You are a priest. You own your own business. You're working out in the marketplace. You're trading stocks and bonds. You're in the government. Whatever you are, first and foremost, you're a priest. You are a representative of who God is to the world around you. On the internet, when you post, (laughs) you are a priest. Before you say it, comment, like it, think it, remember, first and foremost, you are a representative of the creator of the universe. Do your words, do your actions, do your likes represent Jesus or not? You are a priest. In your families, you're a priest. Right? You get my point. God has redefined the priesthood in everyone in this room Wherever you go, whatever you do, you are a representative of who God is, that there is a path that leads to life, and that path is through the person of Jesus. We're going to finish now with a thing we do here. It's become tradition called the benediction. It's simply a prayer of blessing. Um, what, if you would like me to pray over you, you can stand with me and simply just open your hands. Um, again, in Leviticus 9, one of the postures of the people was that they fell face down. I'm not gonna ask you to do that, but it's a posture of humility. Open hands mean, God, I'll receive whatever you have for me, and I would love to pray over you. May you be a people who trust the one way, the way of Jesus in your life. May you be a people filled with grace in every interaction with every person we come encounter with. May you be a people who wrestle with God until he blesses you, knowing that he always will. And may you be a people, a royal priesthood, a special possession, and a holy nation in God's sight, showing the world that there is mercy and grace for anyone who comes back home to Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, hey, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for slugging it through Leviticus 10 with me. It's missions focus weekend. If you want to know what's going on, um, please stop by those tables. If you're new, you want to get connected. The Info Center is right over there. Have a great week. Love you guys. We'll see you soon.